Well, uh, this week I, um, I unwillingly ate uh, mayonnaise that had expired in July. And, um, and so, uh, I, of course, I went to Twitter to find out how long I had to live. And, uh, and so I, I posted about it. And one person responded to my tweet with a quote from the movie Fight Club. They wrote back, on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. So on that cheery note, let's talk about money. Um, we're here to talk about money. And now, seriously, there is actually a connection between my impending death, that quote from Fight Club, and how we view our money. Because money for most of us means security. Now I know, I know people say, more money, more problems, but I mean, like, wouldn't we all like to take that challenge, right? Like, so I mean, we, we get, we hear things like that, but we really think like, if I just had a little bit more money or if I, if I, if I just could get this, then all of a sudden I would feel secure. I used to, I, I don't do this anymore, but I, I used to buy a lotto ticket, um, one, just one, if the lottery got above 500 million, because if you're gonna, if you're gonna maybe lose a dollar, it should be worth it. And so, so every, you know, if it got above 5 million, I would, I would buy one lotto ticket. And y'all, the minute I had that ticket in my hand, I thought, this is it. Like I've won, like I, every time I had the winning ticket and I would spend the next, you know, 24 hours fantasizing about what that ticket would give me. And a lot of times it would start with me realizing I could pay off my house. Uh, and then I would make a list of all the people's houses who I would want to pay off. Uh, because to me, that was security. If your house is paid for, then all of a sudden that could be secure. And then, of course, I would dream about all the places that I would have other homes like L.A. and New York and Aspen and Apalachicola. And so, like, I would, do, I would make that list uh, of places. And, uh, and, and listen, I know some of you have Apalachicola money, but not all of us do. And when you don't, you think that money will buy you security. But money can't stop death. It can't prevent car accidents or cancer. It can't fix your relationship with your children or your spouse. It can't heal your loneliness and your heart can still break. It doesn't matter how much money you have, but yet we still believe if I just had a little bit more, then I'll feel secure. A lot of people come and see me in my office and, and confess sins to me. And, uh, and I've, I've, it's a great pleasure. I mean, not, not pleasure. That was the wrong way to say that. It's a great privilege uh, to sit there and, and hear people's stories. Oh, gosh. Again, much better on screen. Um, <laughs> it's a great privilege to sit and listen to people's stories, especially the stories of their brokenness and their struggles and their sins. And, and really, and in the four years that I've been here, um, I've heard a lot of different confessions. And you can, I, I, probably you can, I can almost guarantee that if you were to come and confess something to me, you can't surprise me anymore. Except if you were to come in my office to confess the sin of greed or materialism. I've never, no one's ever come into my office to talk about that. No one has ever acted like that is a major problem in their life. Yet, there are 2,350 verses about money in the Bible. In fact, money is talked about more than any other vice or, or any, any, other, any other place where we could struggle. Money is talked about constantly. So either... God totally misread his audience or we're in denial. And I, and I think God knows. The Bible actually gives us a way to test and evaluate our relationship to money. And it's called the tithe. Tithe just means 
One way we can test our view of money and its control over us is by examining our reaction to giving away 10% of our annual income. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at probably the most popular verse when it comes to talking about the tithe. It's found in Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. We're going to look in Malachi 3, and I'm going to start reading in the eighth verse. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your bulletin. Verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. This is God's word. So here we have the prophet Malachi telling us that the Lord has instructed us to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That we, were, we, are, we, are, we are asked of God to bring in a 10%, 10 of our annual income into the ministry of the temple. So what's your initial reaction to that? Now, for some of you, maybe you've grown up in church and so you've been taught about the tithe since, you know, your first lemonade stand. Or some of you, maybe it's a brand new concept and you've always wondered why we give tithes and offerings as part of our worship. Or maybe you've grown up in a church where, uh, where they talked about money all the time and it felt very heavy handed and you didn't really trust how the money was being used. So we all have a different reaction when we start talking about the tithe. But what is actually being asked of us in God's word? Does this mean as long as we give away 10% of our income to charity and that, that, that that's it, that we've met the requirement of God? If you give a percentage to your church home and you give a percentage to the Red Cross and, and maybe you support one or two children in Africa, and as long as that all adds up to about 10% of your annual income, you've been obedient. Well, a case can be made for that belief. When Malachi is writing, there's only one central place of worship for all of God's people, and it's called the temple. Now, in the New Testament, God's people become anyone who, who is a follower of Christ. They can be Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. You are no longer called to be part of a, of a central worship community. There's no longer a central place of worship that is the temple, the temple that was in Jerusalem. Now, there's all kinds of local churches popping up in every neighborhood. I mean, churches in the New Testament are popping up like CrossFit gyms. They're just everywhere. Like everywhere you turn, there's a new church being planted. And Jesus had made a claim that made some religious people very upset. He said, I will destroy this temple, this temple in Jerusalem, made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made without human hands. And then we're told when Jesus died on the cross that the, the whole earth shook, that the temple walls were shaken. And in fact, we're told that the, that the curtain that separated man from the Holy of Holies, the place that was believed to be where God dwelt, that that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. So all of a sudden, Jesus says, there's something new that is coming because of me. So when Malachi is writing, when he's writing to God's people, the Israelites in the Old Testament, and he says, you need to bring a tenth of everything you have into the temple, it is different than our current situation. Again, this is important to read scripture always in light of its context. Malachi says, bring the whole 10% of, uh, of your annual income into the temple, but the temple is not the same as the local church. You didn't have little temples on, on every street corner of Main Street. The temple was not a local body of believers. In fact, most people never even made it to the temple because it was too far away from where they lived. 
One commentator said the temple was the institutional seat of the service of God for the entire society. When you gave money to the temple, it not only supported the ministry and the worship that happened within the temple, but it supported the spiritual and physical needs of the entirety of God's people, whether you lived close enough to the temple ever to set foot in it or not. See, there is no one church or organization or charity that is parallel to the temple of the Old Testament. There's no place where you can give your money and it would be the same kind of comprehensive help to the human community that the tithe to the temple would have been. Now here at Summit, we're committed to giving away 15% of everything that comes in through tithes and offerings. So what that means is, you know, the first 15% of money that we receive immediately goes outside the walls of this place. That, that we use that money not for ministry that's happening inside here, but outside, whether it's local or around the world. But even doing that, that's not the same thing as the temple. And to say that it's the same thing, that you can just take one and then make it the other, that, that would be being disingenuous to the text. It would be taking the text out of its context. So, so one could make the argument that the whole 10% doesn't have to be given to one specific church. But that's not really the question I want us to wrestle with. I started by saying the tithe is really a test for us to be able to self-evaluate our view of money. So before we answer the question, how much of my money should I give to Summit, we have to first answer that question. What is my view of money and how does it have control over me? So going back to the text, verse eight. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. Now, Hebrew scholars have puzzled over this passage for years because of the word that we translated rob. Now, the normal Hebrew word for rob would mean how you and I think of rob, just someone taking something that's not yours, stealing, right? But the word that is used here in this passage is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's actually a very rare word in, in, in Hebrew society. And it's a word that means to oppress by pillaging and, and, and plundering. It's a very violent word. The word creates a picture of a wealthy, uh, powerful country invading a much smaller, poorer community. And so as scholars have wrestled with this passage, that's always been curious to them because it's what God says we're doing to him. He's saying, you rob me, you pillage and plunder me. It's as if he's identifying with the smaller, poor community. And of course, our reaction, just like their reaction would be, what are you talking about? You are God. How could we rob you? How could we oppress God? And his response is, because you've withheld the tithe and offering. Verses nine and 10. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God is essentially saying our lack of generosity and our stinginess is a form of oppression that in fact has a cosmic impact. So this is a big deal. For those of us who say we're followers of Jesus, we can't ignore this. We have to truly examine our hearts. To do that, I want us to look, um, we're gonna go to another place in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles uh, uh, chapter 29, uh, David 
gathers all the people of Israel together and they're celebrating because they've just raised the funds to build the temple, the temple that, that Malachi is saying you need to bring your money to. Um, so this temple is being built and it's being built because a lot of people sacrificially gave to it. So David's gathering all of God's people together and he says, all right, we're gonna celebrate what God has done uh, through the provision of, of, of you all. And so they offer God this prayer and I want you to listen to what David prays. This is 1 Chronicles 29, starting in verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight as were all our ancestors. Our days on the earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for Building your temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willing your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. So there's a couple things for us to look at uh, and to think about as, as, we, as we examine what David prayed and how that impacts how you and I think of money. So first of all, David says, everything we have is a gift from God. All of it, everything is a gift. It's all about grace. Now this can be a real hard pill to swallow when we actually really apply it to our money especially if we're a hard worker, especially if we're a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of person. And if you're American, you probably are. I mean, we're, we're kind of born thinking that. And yes, if you have wealth and you worked really hard for it, you played a role in acquiring that wealth, but it's still all a gift. If God had decided you were gonna be a black woman born in Georgia in the 1800s or, or a Jewish man born in Germany in the 1930s, it doesn't matter how hard you worked, you still would not be doing well. If you have more wealth than someone else, it's because you have had opportunities and abilities and circumstances given to you by God. And maybe you played a small part by not squandering away those opportunities, but it's still a gift. Verse 14, everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Secondly, God doesn't give up ownership. Not only is everything you and I have a gift, but God is still the ultimate owner. It's not our money, it's his. We must relate to it now as a broker, not as an owner. Verse 16, Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building of your temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. Now, if you're a money manager and, uh, and you see funds grow and, and, and investors keep giving you more and more money because of how the money grows, you're gonna get excited because you're gonna reap the benefits of, of, that, of that investment, right? But the minute you begin to think of that money that's been given to you as your money, you could get in a lot of trouble. Because you see, with that money comes an accountability. With the, with the money given to you, you're to invest it in ways that are in line with the directions, purposes, desires, and values of those who gave you the money, the investors. And if you don't do that, it's fraud. If God gives you more opportunity and ability and therefore more wealth than others, he's asking you to be a broker for him, to invest in the things that are in line with his heart. 
So with that in mind, all of a sudden, that passage in Malachi, it starts to make sense why the word choice, why the word for rob is talking about an oppression by pillaging and plundering in relation to withholding the tithe. See, God has given us money to be brokers, to use it in line with his heart. So what's in line with God's heart? Well, Jesus one time told the disciple Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So all we have to do is look at Jesus's heart and see what, what God's heart beats fast after. Jesus says the eye is actually the lamp of the body. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says, whatever we're looking at, whatever we're drawn into uh, is, is where our heart is. And then he uses the example of money. He says, we tend to look at the things that give us life. And if we focus on money all the time, whether it's because we have a lot of it and we can't wait to spend it or we like to hoard it, or if we never have enough money, if we're always thinking about how we'll get more money, he says, if we constantly focus on and look at money, we will be drawn into the love of money, whether we have it or not. But if the eye is the lamp of the body, then what are Jesus's eyes full of? If you read the gospels, you see that Jesus was constantly focused on and looking at people. There are over 50 mentions in the gospels of Jesus looking intently at someone. When he saw her, he felt compassion for her. When he saw the crowd, he felt compassion for them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. What is in line with God's heart? People, community. As brokers of God's wealth, we are called to invest in people. We are called to share and plow the money that he's given us back into the human community. We should be doing this in far greater portions than people who do not know God, who do not know his heart, and who do not know that they are his brokers. God is always up to something good, and it's our job as the church, and I don't mean institutionally summit church, I mean us as the body of believers to constantly be finding out what God wants to do and being willing to participate in whatever way we can, whether through just time or finances or prayer. God is constantly bringing healing and redemption into people's lives. And to the extent we are ready to cooperate in God's good work and his goals, God will use us. But if we start by denying that our money is a gift, that it's ours, that we worked hard for it. If we start with denying that we are indeed uh, not brokers, but owners. And if we use the money primarily for ourselves, maybe even still giving some away to charity, but not giving the whole tithe, we are involved, God says, in the unraveling of creation. We are pillaging and plundering it. We are using money not in line with the investor's heart. This is not just a lack of generosity and stinginess, it's fraud. Now, does God want us to feel guilty about how we spend our money? Maybe, but godly guilt is never meant to keep us away from God's heart. It's always an invitation to more of it. So what's the invitation? We'll go back to Malachi chapter three, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. It's as if God here is saying there's something very special about giving. He's saying there's something unique about giving. God never says, hey, hey, Philip, just 
don't try, why don't you give this not committing adultery a try and, and see if I'll bless you. He doesn't say that. He just says, don't commit adultery because I'm God and, and you're not. I created you. I know how you work best. I know how life works best. Just do it. He doesn't have to give us a reason why we do anything. But with giving, he gives us a special, a special uh, uh, treat almost. He says, do this and see if I bless you. He could just say, do this because I said so. And Jesus says a very similar thing in the New Testament. In Luke 6, 38, it's a very close parallel, or parallel to, to Malachi 3.10. Jesus says this, give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. So I know some people will say, well, Malachi, that's the Old Testament. That's not really relevant today. Now we live under grace. But, but then we have Jesus clearly saying the exact same thing. He's giving the same promise that was given to, to the people of the Old Testament to those in the New Testament. He says, give, give generously and watch what God the Father will do. Because you see, Jesus knows what happens to a heart that gives. The tithe is not about some kind of legalistic obligation imposed on followers of Jesus, but it's an invitation to have our hearts transformed more into the image of Christ for the sake of others. Our tithe and offering to God has never been about a certain percentage of our money, but of our whole heart. When I was prepping for this sermon, I read several different articles on on tithing from people from kind of different Christian uh, denominations and perspectives. Cause I just kind of wanted to get a feel for like what, what do Christians kind of across the board think and teach about tithing. And one of the things that was consistent in almost every article I read was they all said that tithing was really the starting place of Christian giving. It wasn't like, oh, once you get to the tithe, then you've reached the pinnacle uh, of Christian giving. No, that the tithe itself is the bare minimum. It's the starting place of what it means to be a Christian. Now, one of the articles I read was by Randy Alcorn. He said, what I always say to people is that if you take the standard of 10% and say God required it of the poorest people in Old Testament Israel, and now that we're under the grace of Jesus and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and we live in an incredibly affluent culture, do you think he would expect less of us? Does God still have expectations of New Testament people? Clearly he does. In fact, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say this. And then each time he raises the bar. A few years ago, I preached a sermon on Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's uh, first children. And, uh, and Cain, of course, is the, is the very first murderer. Uh, he murdered his brother Abel. And at the time that I preached it, there was a lot of stuff going on in my own life kind of personally. And, and it's always stayed with me. Uh, it, it really kind of, there's some sermons that, you know, I, I forget what I preached two weeks ago, but, but I've, I've held on uh, to this one sermon on Cain and Abel. And, uh, and Cain was the older brother. And Cain's name means to acquire, to get, to possess. Uh, I mean, it's a very fitting name uh, for Cain. And then his younger brother, Abel, his name means vapor or breath, which is ominously accurate for how his life would end. But what makes the story fascinating and why it's stuck to, with me is not because it's the story of the first murder, even though I'm fascinated by that. I'm watching the Law and Order Menendez Brothers thing right now, and I, I'm fascinated by, by watching trials and, and kind of how that all plays out. But that's not why Cain and Abel is so fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me because it all started with an offering made to God. 
We see Abel's offering being acceptable to God and we see Cain's not. And it doesn't really make sense. It's not like Cain is out there like living life however he wants and boozing it up and, and he, you know, he's not even trying to like please God. And then Abel's like this perfect little church kid who, who does all the right things. Like it's not, you don't have a comparison that way. And in fact, both of them bring an offering to God. It's not like one person's working hard and the other person is taking advantage of the system. They both offer God an offering. There's not an obvious difference. The only difference really is one's a farmer, Abel's a farmer, and then Cain uh, is, is a, ran uh, is a I'm sorry, said that wrong. Abel is a rancher and Cain is a farmer. And so what they bring is different. Abel brings a, a lamb and, 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 and Cain brings some of his, his vegetables. So what's the difference? What, what makes the difference between the two? Why does God accept one and not the other? Well, it's really subtle. And it's supposed to be subtle because the story is not primarily about human behavior, but about the human heart. Because our tithe is not primarily about human behavior and how much we're giving to God, but it's about our heart. In Genesis 4, verses 3 and 4, it says this, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. This is very subtle. Now, every year, the income of a rancher is directly proportional to how many new calves or lambs or, or, or whatever kind of animal they have, what, however many of them are born, is, is your annual income. And so if you were to bring God an offering, uh, you would wait until the end of the year, see how many were born that year, and then you'd make an offering to God. So let's say you had 12 new lambs that year. You would bring, um, you bring like two, right? You say like, I'm a tither, so I'll, so I'll bring two, two lambs before God. But we're told here that Abel gives his firstborn. That's crazy. He didn't know how the rest of the year is gonna go. What if he just gave God 50% of his income? That doesn't even make sense. But Abel does it. Why? Because it's about Abel's heart. It's not about the percentage of money given, but about the whole heart. And Abel has this kind of joyous, abandoned approach to things. He has like this childlike faith in God. He trusts God enough to give to God first. And by doing so, he's declaring, God, you are my provider. So when I preached on Cain and Abel, um, I, I had recently uh, found out uh, in the, as I was doing my preparation that I had not been tithing for a while. Um, we had a, a debit card that got lost, so we had to cancel it. And, and I never went back into the, you know, the system to like change the information because my tithe just kind of automatically took out every month. And, uh, and so when I, when I realized that I had not been tithing and I was like, oh man, and I was so disappointed because first of all, I thought God had just been blessing me. Like I thought like I had more money and I did have more money, but I was robbing God. And, um, and so, so when I go in and I try to examine like, all right, how, you know, what, how bad is this? It was bad. Like it had been, it had been several months and it had accumulated. And I remember having a thought like, okay, I could start over fresh today, right? His mercies are new today. It's all about grace sack. Just start tithing from this moment forward. Uh, but I knew that if I did that, my heart would be in danger. So on that Sunday, the Sunday I preached on Cain and Abel, I, I wrote a, a rather, you know, not large, large, but you know, like large for me, check to, to Summit. And, uh, and, and I did it and I was like, okay, I did it and that's good, I was obedient. Um, and then when I went out to, I guess, uh, I went out to the car, uh, my car broke down. And so I was like, ah. But I realized in that moment that had I not done it, 
Had I not given that money away ahead of time, it would have been so easy in my own head to justify, I'll just wait to catch up. Let me take care of my car first and then I will catch up on my tithe. But you see, the price would have been greater because it would have affected my heart. In Abel, we see where his heart is. It's with God. We see someone who has not believed the lie that his parents believed, that God is a withholding God, that God doesn't want the best for you, that that you, in fact, want to be like God because you can make better decisions than him. Don't trust him. He's a cosmic killjoy. He's not a good God. But Abel had a heart that said, no, he is. And I'll trust him. And I'll trust that he's the one who will provide for me. So after preaching on Cain and Abel, I decided I needed to change the way I tithe. And I'm not suggesting this. This is just what I did. So um, I, I, I knew um, that, uh, that setting up an automatic tithe payment um, was just not good for me because I didn't, really, I didn't really think about it. Once I did it, it was like done. It, was, I, it wasn't even part of my, my life anymore. I didn't even notice when it wasn't happening. So I decided, all right, I got to change this. And so I started trying to think through, all right, how, how can I make tithing part of my worship? And, um, and I knew I wasn't going to order checks for the only purpose of tithing because that would be all I would use them for. So I wasn't going to do that. And I didn't trust myself to like go home and get on the internet and like make the tithe, you know, after church. Um, and so I was, I was really kind of wrestling, all right, God, how do I make this part of my kind of worship? And um, and, uh, and so uh, as I was praying that and as I was asking to have a heart like Abel, it became uh, clear to me that what I needed to do was just at the beginning of the year, write a check for 10% of, of what I thought I would make that year. And, um, and I thought about it and I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And, uh, and I've done that the last two years. I've just said, all right, at the beginning of the year, spend some time praying. I think through like what I will, what I'll make in the year and I'll write that check. And, uh, and it's, been, it's been a cool thing for me because throughout the rest of the year, now I'm just looking for opportunities to give. Like I have now other, I just look, is there, are there other opportunities that God is now giving me? Now, again, I'm not saying this is what everyone should do and I don't even, it's not prescribed in the Bible, but this was the way that I could begin to move towards God in trust, to give him my whole heart. Because again, God doesn't need our money. It's not about the percentage of our money. It's about our heart. Does God have your whole heart? After Cain and Abel's parents sinned, a whole world fell apart. In fact, they felt so much shame and brokenness that God had to come after them and say to them, explain to them what they were experiencing. He explained to them that now things would be different, that now they would want to hide from him and from others, that there would be pain and suffering in the world, that, that things would now be broken. But then he also tells them, that it won't always be like that. He says, one day I will make this your perfect home again. One day I will wipe away every tear from every eye. One day I will come and rescue you. And I'm not gonna explain to you fully what that means, but I promise you I will provide. And he did so with just one verse. In Genesis 3.15, God promises Adam and Eve that one day they would have a son who would crush the head of the serpent, who would destroy forever sin and death. God promises that he will save the world, that he will be their deliverer. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, uh, there's some commentary on the Cain and Abel story. And it's interesting because it, it makes it very clear that what was going on with Cain and Abel with their different offerings was really about faith. It had nothing to do with the size of the offering, but where Cain and Abel had placed their faith. 
See, there's only two reasons to bring your offering to God. There are only two reasons why you would put money in a basket. There's only, there's only two reasons why you would offer a lamb or an offering in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and today. You're either offering an offering as a response to God's salvation or to gain it. You're either offering it as a response to what God has done or you offer it as a way to say, hey, help me out, God. Pay attention to me. Answer my prayers. Now, here's the amazing thing about Abel. Abel, even with a very rudimentary understanding of the gospel, all Abel had was that promise in Genesis 3.15 that God would one day make things right. That's all he had. But he had faith that that was true. And so when he gave, when he offered his offering, he was offering in response to the promise of salvation. But you and I, we make our offering in response to the fulfillment of salvation. We see how Jesus is making everything right. I mean, we watch, we watch the baptism video and we see like God is doing things. He's changing people's lives and, and that we are invited into that work as part of this church family. We know that the promise has been fulfilled and that one day it really will all be right. We know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And whatever we have, whatever we've been given, God wants us to take that and invest it in people so that they know that truth, the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that, uh, that you want our hearts. And I thank you that in your wisdom and in your understanding of our struggle and of who we are and the ways in which we've fallen, you know that the way to get to our hearts is to expose what we think about money. Father, I pray that you would set us free from, from that binding belief that money will offer us security because in you we have security. In you, we know the promise of, of, a, of a new heaven and a new earth is true. And Father, as we contemplate what it means for us to give you our whole heart, Father, I pray that we would begin to see uh, the blessing that you promise, not only in the Old Testament, but through Jesus. You promise us to give and give generously, and we will be surprised by your goodness. We thank you for that promise. We pray that many people uh, in our community and the world around us would know the truth of the gospel because you've allowed us to be part of it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.